Hi, this is DJ Bonebreak, and whenever I'm not sitting around juggling apples, I listen to The Jukebox Graduate. Welcome to the Jukebox Graduate. I'm Eugene Edwards. I'm Dave Rayburn. And along with us this morning is Mr. Brian Whelan. Say hello, Brian. Hello out there in podcast land. <laughs> Are there more than one podcast out there? <laughs> There's three. Okay, good. <laughs> All right, good. Um, so we are uh, delighted to have our first yeah. guest on the show. And this man I, uh, I've known for, uh, over 10 years. Yeah. But it doesn't matter how many years. Long time. Almost as long as I've known David. And, uh, and Brian and I, it seems as though uh, years ago we started a conversation about music and it's it's never stopped, much like my relationship with David. Uh, now, before we get into Brian's career and his history, his, his hopes, his dreams, his fears, um, David, you have something, a little follow-up on Record Store Day, which was a... a good portion of our last yeah, episode. Yeah, we talked about it quite a lot in the last episode and, uh, and I think you were out on the road as it was happening. Probably. Because it was on a weekend. And uh, but I went out, hit a couple shops, and had my wish list. Got just about everything, and that's the key: is you don't want to find everything because Why not? music collectors always want to have something elusive. Oh, <laughs> so that happened. But uh, did find mostly everything <laughs> I was looking for. A couple of our wait, listeners. Wait, hold on. Let's get into the psychology yeah. of this. Yeah. So record collectors, they <laughs> oh, want no. to have a flaw. Like they want to have. Oh, too late. <laughs> they they want to have something missing. Yeah. Yeah, is, that's the problem. Is that right? how they view themselves as well? Like they prefer, <laughs> they're trying to fill a, a need. Yeah, there's no destination. There's no it's destination. A, it's a journey. It's the journey. It's an ongoing journey. It's like the like like I, don't, I, I always have heard. I don't know if this is urban legend or not. That with with per, Persian carpets when they're woven, they leave a flaw because man cannot achieve perfection. That's that's like that's God's domain. Mm-hmm. Perfection is. So I think maybe the record collectors. I think, we're hit, I think we're hitting on something here. Right? It, yeah. Could okay, be, so you're yeah. collecting Persian records. Continue. Persian records. They sound adorable. <laughs> uh, started off at Fingerprints out in Long Beach, and the line going around the corner. So Record Store Day is certainly on, still on a huge upswing, and it's a, a huge shot in the arm for record shops, indie stores. Right. And uh, Fingerprints happened to have a couple in-store appearances that, that day, and I went to a couple of them. One, I got to see the Alarm perform in a little record shop, which is just fantastic. Uh, and then later in the afternoon, uh, Lowell Tolhurst, from the original uh, drummer from The Cure, oh. uh, he was up with uh, with the band through, I think, 89 or so. Mm-hmm. He was doing a, a signing. He had a new book out. I see. Um, but it was just a great way for people to come and interact with a record store, to come meet some artists, come see some live music. Um, Warner Brothers even sent out an ice cream truck, giving out free ice cream <laughs> out front, which it was just a fantastic day. And uh, a couple of our uh, listeners on the Facebook page actually posted some of the things that they were looking for. There was a Grant Green record that one listener was looking for. Ooh. Oh, there was a Jason Isbell uh, live. Oh yeah, that record. was his special release for that day, right? Yes, I think yeah. Okay, exclusive to that day. And then there was a Waylon Jennings that somebody was looking for that apparently was not found. So I don't know if that was extremely limited. But again, that goes back to the whole got to have something to find, track down eventually. <laughs> he, he will live another day. But uh, he doesn't have. Yeah. So okay. I had a great time, and, uh, and I have a little surprise for you, Gene. For me? Yes. Hang you, tight. Hopefully you, the mics pick this up. Are you quitting? Can we put a door slamming sound effect there? I just left. <laughs> oh, oh hey. This, Beautiful. This looks uh, like a 
The 12 by 12 box. It's, it's a bowling a, ball. It's, in a, it's, <laughs> it's, in a, it's a mysterious cardboard. All right. Since we, you couldn't get out and shop that day. I no, Lord knows where I was. Uh, let's see here. This is... Uh, oh! <laughs> and it, it is the uh, Jason Isbell and 400 unit live from Welcome to 1979. Welcome to 1979 is one of those uh, all analog studios. Yeah, that's I guess they're popping up now. Right, that's right. To be cut. covers. So when we say live, pretty cool. We don't mean in front of an audience, not a club. Gig. What this was, the story behind this one, from what I understand, is there was a convention of some kind. Mm-hmm. Might have been a label thing. Had about a hundred people attend this thing, and in the evening, Jason performed with his band, did some covers. Although I think there's a Drive By Trucker song in there that he at least wrote or co-wrote. Yeah. So I don't know if you really call that a cover. But some Springsteen on there and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah some Stones. Everyone's doing that one now, Atlantic City. Oh, re- yeah. I, I see that band that band cover of Atlantic City performed by numerous yeah. bands. Wow. That, was, that was really catching on. Yeah. Huh. It's got a little something for everyone in there. You it know does. I mean? <laughs> got dead mobsters, <laughs> nylons. <laughs> it's a lot of... They finished recording by like 10 p.m. Okay. And that studio has a... Uh, they're able to make the plates. What they did is they, they actually bypassed recording digitally or to tape. Oh, yeah. They went direct to they lacquer, direct right? to lacquer. They, they, they cut to disc. They right went there. upstairs, created the plates, put them on a private plane, sent them to Kentucky to get the discs made up, flew them right back, and by the time the convention finished, everybody got a record on their way out of the performance they saw oh, the okay. night before. Jeez. And they got a place for those private planes to land over there in Kentucky? or I, I don't, you know what? I'm sorry, they, Kentucky. Thanks again. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, thank you very much. That is very generous. It's very thoughtful. You you know what I fan uh, what a fan I am of, of this guy and this band. Yes, and we will talk a little bit. We later will, about and that's Disney yeah. But thank you. That was very very sweet. Yeah. And I, I certainly hope there's a download card in there because I know you. Oh, you know how I am. <laughs> well, wouldn't that be ironic if they did? Because it's all analog, direct to lacquer, and then. But even if not, I have a turntable. Some I'll figure it out. Turntable Tuesdays right here. There you go. Thank you very much, Dave. You got it. Now, uh, here are we, we are. Here we are. And there he is, right? Let's talk about me, said Brian. Hey, Brian. Okay, so Brian, <laughs> I, I consider you <laughs> well in the category of jukebox graduate. Yeah. And, and I remember uh, when I first met your parents, uh, they, visited, they were visiting down here in Los Angeles, and we were playing a club, and I think your mom went on a tirade about Sam Phillips. Hmm. And that's when I realized this explains everything. Everything. Oh yeah. Well, it's not just me. It's a whole. It's a family of jukebox. Oh, is it really? Oh, oh yeah. Wow. Is your brother the same? <laughs> my brother and my mom and dad are all people who read liner notes. Oh, okay. So, nice. so if any of you are, are aware of, of Brian's work, he has he has two records out. Uh, one's the Decider. The other's Sugarland. And uh, they're fantastic. I I think of these as rock albums. And I know that we can we could do a whole hour on just you know, categorization of music. Yeah. No. But um, I'm with you. Uh, there's, I guess, some would, some would call it Americana, some would, I don't know what else. You were have you right heard? the first time. They're it's rock and roll records. Rock and roll uh, records, and that's really, you know, power pop and Americana, which are two things, you know, words that get used to describe my music a lot. To me, are rock and roll kind of wearing different hats. There you, know? you go. Okay. Sometimes so- literally. Perfectly put. <laughs> Perfectly put. So uh, some of you who are listening to the show, you might already be familiar with this work. If you're not, please run out and get some of it. Or check. Are you on Spotify? I'm on, yeah, everywhere you can get music. And- Brian Whelan, W-H-E-L-A-N. Yeah. And, uh, or go to Brian Whelan Music. Music. Dot com. Dot com. And I, 
it's just I rarely say this, but I just I guarantee you're gonna love this guy's stuff, right? Agreed. And and Brian and I spent uh, I don't know three or four years uh, in Dwight Yoakam's band. In fact, Brian's the one who referred me into that gig. Uh, and before that, Brian was in a band. Let's see, well, I'm going in reverse. So I, I can tell you that. how it happened. I met Gene <laughs> on my 21st birthday at yeah. the Cinema Bar in Culver City, California. First time I ever went there. Yeah. My, my friend lived nearby, and he said, you're going to love this place. And we were actually going to see Randy Weeks. At the, <laughs> at the time, he played there every other Saturday. But this particular Saturday was one of the off ones, and Gene was in there playing, and uh, we we struck up a lifelong friendship. That's right. Nice. That's right. And I didn't, and because and, Brian came in, it was like a big, it was like a, a decent group of people all came in towards the end of the evening. So that, uh, so the, okay, well, we're going to play another hour now because these folks showed and up. And Gene was cool, too, because I a lot of guys that I met at the cinema bar whose music I enjoyed, I, I, I asked them all if I could come play with them. And Gene was really the first one to kind of, to let me do that. Maybe to have an opportunity to do that. I know it's all, someone always has to get sick. You know, you can't just you can't just walk <laughs> up and say <laughs> you can't just walk up and say, "Hey, I'm really good. You gotta, you guys gotta hire me." You know, it's like yeah. everyone says that. Yeah, I, we, we we spoke that <laughs> night, and I said, "What's the occasion?" And you and you and you said, "It's my twenty my twenty first birthday," and we just kind of wandered over here. So, oh, fantastic! And after the set, we talked, and it was most of the guys you were in a band at the time called the Smooth Pursuit. So it was you and a bunch of those cats, actually, Josh and yeah. Try finding that record. Yeah, try. Find- <laughs> I <laughs> will for record yeah. Day, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that's your journey right there. <laughs> um, and and so oh cool, you guys are a band. And then you, and you said yeah, you said like yeah, you know, I play a bunch of instruments. If you ever need you know, sit in or if you ever need a fill in or something like that, it was just. And maybe no one had ever quite offered, or, or something about you felt right. And uh, and like it just seemed like a couple of weeks later, a bass player wasn't able to make it to a show and so i called you and and it was gonna be a trio gig too so mm-hmm. i was gonna have to rely on you a lot yeah that was fun and i remember it was a or- gig out in orange county horse painters were there too uh yeah they were Dave that's right Lucas. uh and someone requested veronica by elvis costello mm-hmm. now this is not louis louis i mean in terms of chord changes and movement this right. is and we played it and and i and i just kind of had this look like an apologetic look and it was like this is very unfair to do this to this bass player who's kind of just subbing at the last second yeah and boom and then you just shrugged and you said yeah i know it let's play that let's, song let's play that song love it and i said really he just yeah let's go and he just was so calm about it and so i looked back at our, our drummer soupy and i said uh okay let's try veronica and and the kid nailed it. And after that, I just thought, okay, so there's something going on with this guy. Because I'm just kind of doing the math on how old he uh, was at the time and yeah. when that record came out and how the heck would you so um that really sparked even was like so what else do you know and then uh as i had my band at the time it was sort of like whatever instrument we didn't have covered from night to night i would just have brian come in so he would play keyboards one night he'd play bass another night he'd just come in and play lead guitar or rhythm and lead guitar and sing harmonies one night a couple of nights he filled in on drums wow. uh so yeah it was wow first guy to hire me to really play, uh, you know, lead guitar in, yeah. in his, you know, the, a band that wasn't my band. Yeah. You know, was, and which is really where I ultimately 
ended up and where I wanted to go. But I mean, it's it's hard to get. There's so many guitar players; it's very hard. Right. To get there. So I, I owe Gene for. I remember letting when, me do let me run rampant. There were nights the, where material. at the end of one song where there was typically one of my long guitar solos, and you were playing bass, I would just swap. I just yeah. hand you my guitar and take the bass. Or if we already had a bass player, I'd just go sit out in the audience and hand Brian my guitar and just say, well, you just, you just go from yeah. here. We did it all back then. We did it all. all those and this is the days of legend, too, because there's no footage of any of this. Uh, so before iPhones and all that. Yeah, so no iPhones. We could just make up all sorts of stories. Wow. So, um, but we had a couple of real busy years. We played hundreds of shows and, yeah. and went all over the place. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. We went to, went to England. Uh, in fact, we were in Liverpool the night that the Red Sox finally uh, won the World Series after some... 80 plus year drought and they beat the Cardinals um, and uh, and then uh, well I guess I think of it as the Broken West mm-hmm. oh, so yeah. there was a band uh, called the Broken West that I uh, they were called the Broke Down yes. originally yeah. and Gene was how I heard of this band Gene used to write reviews of albums on his website which you should still do I mean yeah. I guess you're kind of doing it now are they still out there yeah. um, who your reviews <clears throat> I don't know. Go to eugeneedwards.com. Excellent question. <laughs> I don't Plug. Know. I, don't, I don't know. I I just quit the internet virtually years ago, so I, I'm just kind of I don't know. But but Brian, so you were yeah. So yes, I'm sorry. We played the Viper Room actually, and those guys came to the show and handed me their CD. Mm-hmm. And the lore, the the story is that I, my my washing machine was broke, so I had to fix it, and I just wanted to put some music on, and that CD was just sitting on top of my kitchen counter. I said, yeah, I'll give this a shot, and I was bowled over. I just fell in love with this. Right. So this would be the EP. Is that the one with the psychedelic cover? Yes. No. Oh, yes. It's got a psychedelic yeah, cover. T- Although technically they all had psychedelic covers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But th- this was the EP. Uh, that was released called The Dutchman's Gold yes. when the band was called The Broke Down. And yes. it had six or seven songs on it, and it was very, very good. Yeah, And uh, that was how they got me to join the band as well. I was on the strength of that. And that's how that's actually how they got their deal with Merge. That's how mm-hmm. Ross got the deal with Merge. And, um, and then you hit the road. And then we hit the road for a few years uh, pretty hard. And we still played s- uh, some at that time, but it was, the, it was the two years before I joined that band, 05. It's like 04, 05. Yeah. yeah. That... Gene and I really went went at it pretty hard, yeah. and then uh, with you know Soupy and yeah. all those guys, and then the Broken West, and that was um, that was like a five year thing. Wow! And we went all over the country. I, that was really the heaviest, the beginning of my heavy heavy touring. Yeah, because we just went everywhere you could go in the continental United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes two and three and four and five times. So we just went. That's all, how you do it, though. And that's right? how we did it. And right when we started to get a little traction, of course, the band broke up. <laughs> um, but we were able to get out of. Uh, you know, we don't. We don't. Didn't have a mountain of debt. Yeah. We had a good label experience with Merge Records. They were great. And um, you know, and that basically kind of opened the door for the Dwight Yoakam experience to happen, which was the next, the next kind of phase of my life and. Uh, it would it just kind of dovetailed nicely into it because mm-hmm. that that just went away. I mean, the Broken West went away. The the guys all left town, and I mean, it stopped and mm-hmm. went away. And uh, shortly thereafter, the Dwight vacancy came came up, and it just it was uh, I hate this word, but it was quite organic. <laughs> Why do you hate that uh, word? I just, yeah, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it made sense. 
Good. Everything lined up and made sense. Um, so, and then uh, was it, so I guess it was at the beginning of 2015, you struck out on your own. Yes, that's correct. Right. And, and, yeah. and by this point, you kind of already... Well, because we have a stack of records, so it's not, it's not just your material, your solo material, but you're also kind of become a, a, a producer. Yeah, we can talk about the production later. So the, the, <laughs> the Decider came out when I was still with right. Dwight. That came out in 2012. And what I learned was, and this isn't anybody's fault, but I learned that it was not possible to do both of these things at once uh, because I, I had the money to record an album, hire a publicist, on and on and on and I couldn't go play any shows to promote it. Right. So it was uh, you know, not the best use of that money and, and I tried for a few years to do both and it was it was difficult uh, you know, for me to do that. So scheduling wise. Scheduling wise. Uh, and that was really the only reason. There's just not enough Fridays and Saturdays right. in the year. Yeah. So um, so I had to make that choice, and Dwight was, you know, great about it, and continues to be great about it, and you know, lets me open for him, and yeah, calls so. once in a while to harangue me and everything, and uh, <laughs> it's it's nice. So, and that's and it's been about two years, coming up on two and a half years, and I would say it's been going well. And then and then to pick up the thread of being a lead, and guitar, well is in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's relative. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that. Uh, you, it's 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 a it really uh, makes me happy to see you playing lead guitar. Yeah, me too. For someone else, I also you're a great guitar player, and your band when you play that four piece version of, the, of Brian Whelan is just is just really rocking. Mm. And um, but then you've been on the road with somebody else as a lead guitar player as right. well lately. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So that would be Chris Shiflett, and I met Chris when I was still uh, working for Dwight. Uh, Dwight's drummer, our mutual friend and confidant Mitch mm-hmm. Marine introduced me brought me into the Chris Shiflett uh, band and introduced me to to him and that's been great I wrote a little bit with Chris for his new he has a new record out on side one dummy called uh, West Coast Town and I co-wrote a few of the songs on there with him and uh, went out on the road with him to promote the record which has been a lot of fun and I get to open a lot of those shows so that's been that's Symbi- been a pretty cool thing as well. I don't know if you think this word is stupid. Can I say that symbiotic? Yes, that is symbiotic. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, more so for me, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> symbiotic doesn't have to mean equal, does it? I- I'm the remora, <laughs> and, and Chris is the shark. Let's put it that way. Uh, so, and then uh, Chris is one of those guys. Uh, he's the other one of the other two people who has a podcast about music, uh, from right. what I understand. Um, oh, Gene, you got to get on this podcast thing. There, there's there's a lot of guys out there. <laughs> is, are there? Things. Oh man, does that mean bunch. that there's four now? <laughs> so great, there's now there's bunch. four. Um, so uh, Chris did... has a great podcast called Walking the Floor. That's yeah. great. Uh, which you know he he got into it years ago. I mean, yeah. he's, he's been on it now for got got to be three years at least. Oh, easily. Uh, the the interesting thing is obviously Chris uh, his full time gigs in the Foo Fighters, mm-hmm. but then he is from. He's from Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, um, and has a he kind of has a Jones for, for Bakersfield and country or yeah, country pure honky tonk, pure honky, pure honky tonk and hardcore honky tonk and Bakersfield honky tonk and kind of not necessarily like the Nashville sound of country as as you know as we kind of talk about it as we dissect it, mm-hmm. but he really likes the barroom 
Honky Tonk, which of course we've talked about ad nauseum with Dwight, as oh, st- yeah. starting in many ways in Bakersfield in mm-hmm. the bars. Took it out of the church and put it into the bars, right? Yep. So that's the kind of country music that he's into, and that aligns nicely with his roots as a uh, California, you know, like pop punk kind of a guy. Yeah. And just punk punk. I mean, yeah. he's he was like a, you know, skater punk. You know, so he definitely has this side of it, and but it kind of, like, you know, it kind of goes nicely. It does with make the, sense. Makes sense with the with the edginess of, of that kind of hardcore honky. We're avoiding the word organic, Dave. You can tell. Are we gonna have a word review at the end? <laughs> this is gonna be homework. I have the best words. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure of that. So, uh, yes. And so now, what I like uh, that there's a consistency in the two albums in in, in the Decider and Sugarland. These are your two records. Um, now I noticed. Personally, because like the decider was something I was hearing it in bits and pieces as you were making it. Mm-hmm. As where Sugarland kind of came to me all in one shot for uh-huh. the most part. Right. So I, so in my brain, I, you know, one of them I know of as more of a process. The other one I know of as an album. Look at who's shaking for free. Looking for action indeed All of the cheap wealth Keep to yourself if you please Oh, what a wonderful feeling Seeing you down on your knees
you, what is the difference between the between Decider and Sugarland? Well, you know, I wish that Sugarland had been, you know, uh, constructed the way you received it, you know, because it wasn't. It was a process the same as Decider. Mm-hmm. Like they both both these records took you, three and four years to make and were done piecemeal. Yeah. To me, the big difference is Decider is a little bit more of a. It's just a little more negative. I think I was in a more negative kind of place. I was, uh, you know, I didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. I was in this band that had uh, gone off the rails and broken up and right. I ended a long relationship, all this stuff, you know. And so it has, to me, this sad kind of sheen over it, whereas Sugarland is kind of like I wrote so much of this music and recorded it when, you know, life was really good. <laughs> and it felt like the world was just opening up to me. Uh-huh. And, you know, neither one of those things are really like, the reality probably mm-hmm. of of my life but it's just how it kind of seemed at the time was that being uh the the tracks for decider being written uh prior to your time with dwight yes it's sort of in between uh like all of the, it was written prior to dwight and just and uh, after the broken west and after the broken west like kind of as it was ending okay you know what i mean a lot of hmm. that was written and recorded then and and you know it's i didn't think about it at the time but hearing the question and, and thinking back it's like you know that's kind of because they, they are not that different of albums, you know, musically. They're these they're rock and roll records, you know, but they I think that the other one, the, the, the newer record, Sugarland, is probably just a little more optimistic. Yeah, a little more playful, for yeah. sure. And then, uh, meaning, uh, talk about how they're not that different, uh, you have a, a, a really nice, I think, a, a really dream setup with the studio. Mm-hmm. And the process, uh, in terms of your recording process, where you do it, how you do it? Can you tell us a little about that about yes. Mark and his? Yes, you place? want to talk about Mark. Yeah. Uh, this this studio where I have done. Um, I didn't do Decider there. I did Sugarland there, but I have done everything I've ever produced. I've done at this same studio, and it's called the Station House. It's in Echo Park, California, and the uh, owner operator is a guy named Mark Rains, uh, who, along with Dave Cobb, was a uh, engineer and producer for the Shooter Jennings records oh. of the late yeah. aughts or whatever, t- 2005 to 2010. Mm-hmm. They did four records together and had some success. Dave Cobb moved back to Nashville, and Mark uh, ha- set up his own studio in Echo Park. And it has a great live drum sound. You know, the, the room where you track just sounds really wonderful, so that helps with drums. And really anything that you mm-hmm. want to put the room on, you can do that. And Mark is a great guy. He's, you know, anyone will tell you he's just this very laid back uh, and, and very talented engineer. Yeah. You know, he doesn't he doesn't say much, but he kind of he makes great sounds and kind of speaks that way. Sugar 
I got to give a little shout out to Mark there. And yeah, it's just all these, all this huge, the stack of records I just handed you, the stuff that I've produced and played on and everything has all been cut there. Which includes Breaking the Blues by Amy Blaschke. Out now. Out now. Also, Sam Marine's Big Dark City. Out now. And Rod Melancon's Southern Gothic. Yeah, Rod Melanson. Melanson. Southern Gothic, and that is out uh, next week. That's right. Yep. Check and, that out. Um, so uh, go to brianwheelandmusic.com to find out any live dates, if he's coming down. You play Texas a lot? I play Texas a lot. I'm playing the West Coast this summer. Fantastic. I'm uh, all over the place. Check it out. Go out there. Support some, some great, great music. Did you guys want me to play a song? Or was that just... That would be... I, I, really? I would love that to happen. I, I would too. I would love that. That would be... Up that to would you. really make this thing great. Yeah, well, let me do it. I okay. The, all right. I want to play a new song for you boys. This is a song that uh, I've started recording, and it hopefully will be available very soon in a recorded format. The song's called Rock and Roll Dream. so cool have a band with all my buddies we'd never go to school it's not quite as easy as it might seem all I know is my rock and roll dream all I know is my rock and roll dream my old man used to give me some serious talks Wasting all your time on that poverty box Didn't even phase me, didn't change a thing I held on tight to my rock and roll dream Held on tight to my rock and roll dream Yeah, I read about the funeral Rock and roll in Mojo Magazine and rolling and a big long casket It's painted black But I don't believe I just can't conceive Well you don't get no money You don't get no chicks Just lawyers and promoters And all their dirty tricks I got no pride left No self esteem Just let me keep my rock and roll dream. Just let me keep my rock and roll dream. I read about the funeral of rock and roll in Mojo Magazine and the Rolling Stone. In a big long casket, it's painted black, but I don't believe. I just can't conceive. It's the only thing I really need And I love it so I'll never let it go Yeah Just let me keep my rock and roll dream Just let me keep my rock and roll dream Just let me keep my rock and roll dream Just let me keep my rock and roll dream Just let me keep my rock and roll dream. 
great song and could be a theme song to this, uh, to this podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. Beautifully done. We're going to move on to some topics, Brian, that we uh, have, uh, that we, like we normally do, we cover a few things. And uh, Will I still be able to talk about myself? Yes. You, the whole okay. idea is Just you use fold, the best words, though. <laughs> you fold in yourself and your life into the topic of music. That's the point of the show. I love folding. Yeah, yeah folding. So, <laughs> so uh, Dave, what do we got coming up? What do we got coming up? Uh, well, 50 years ago, the music scene, mm-hmm. 1967. Right. A lot of stuff happening there. But to bring something to the forefront here, the biggest thing that probably happened was the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album is now being reissued, or has just been reissued, in a deluxe box set. Yeah. It features all kinds of working takes, studio banter, different mixes, mm-hmm. brand new mixes. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you guys think? So you we've guys all had, have a had a chance to hear You had a chance to hear it, right, Brian? Yes. Oh, okay, you go, you're the guest. You go first. Okay, what Sergeant I would like Pepper. to say about the Velvet Underground and Nico is that it is the best record. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What are we? Okay. Get this man a banana. Um, so, wait. First of all, uh, I was saying, okay, so we were all born after the release of Sgt. Pepper. None of yes. us have a memory of the date. I'm glad you're looking at me intently just to confirm. <laughs> right, Dave? Dave, right? You Dave, weren't born right, in the late 40s, right? I believe uh, yeah, I'm sorry. So, and this and this for me was actually a a a, a gap in the in the cool uh, liner note collecting you know vision of my parents. You know they did not have this record. Oh, it see, was, this is what I was saying. Okay, yeah. So how did you come? So to they Pepper? but they had the entire Beatles catalog except Sergeant Pepper. So you, not only did you not have the liner notes, but you didn't have the cutouts. I didn't even have the cover. I didn't have any of the music. They didn't oh, ever geez. talk about it. That's not true. They did talk about it because it was it was stolen. It was oh. stolen by movers. And that was why we didn't have it. Oh. oh. They also took the uh, the soundtrack from Hair. Now, what if those movers had a band of their own, and those stolen records did something to alter the course of music those, history? Those movers turned into the band Jellyfish. Anyway, so my, my point is I heard Sgt. Pepper uh, much later in life. Yeah. Uh, I was maybe 14 or something when I heard it. As opposed, Like, I heard Rubber Soul when I was five and six years old. And right. Stuff. So wow. Sgt. Pepper was conspicuously... A decade later, and I would just want, I, I thought it sounded really great. Um, and and the most obvious difference to me, I'm talking about the new mixes now for uh-huh. Sgt. Pepper's, I uh, thought they sounded great, uh, much more modern. And uh, a couple of big things would be the kind of lack of reverb. The vocals are mm-hmm. way more yeah. present and upfront, so it's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. But the drum sounds are much more modern. And this is something that I'm really into. We we're talking about Mark Raines and this mm-hmm. studio drum sound. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of modern drum sounds really mix in the room on the drum to give it uh, almost a, a distorted quality and a more like slapping, cracking, interesting immediacy. Yeah, and uh, this is something that they did with these drums on on these remixes somehow. <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because on the on the original recordings, you can really hear. Uh, the degeneration of the sound because the drums were frequently done first and then bounced down. Yep. And so they don't have that immediacy. They're a little more, uh, you know, a little more muffled, a little more muddy. Mm-hmm. And I really noticed that they, they made these drums really crack. And, yeah. and it's almost as if they are mixing this record to compete with modern, uh, you know, modern music, really. It's like Sgt. Pepper's for the modern mix, which is like the drums are right up in your, you listen to a yeah. Jay-Z record, the yeah. drums are like in your face. Foo Fighters too. Go ahead, Eugene. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I'm about to explode. Yeah, this is... Okay, first, 
first of all, listen, I grew up with Sergeant Pepper, uh, and my dad with my dad's vinyl copy, and he had the capital, so the U.S. release of Sergeant Pepper, mono, uh, peculiar. But so I grew up with Sergeant Pepper in mono, and of course, so and and so and there's a couple of different some differences there. I heard when I'm 64, and she's leaving home at different speeds than most people did. I remember growing up when one of those, if either of those, I remember the, the the opening credits to World According to Garp. Yes, that's right. That's what I see when I hear the that baby song bouncing every up time. Right. And I remember as a kid seeing that movie or seeing at least seeing the intro, thinking, "Why does this sound weird?" And because they're playing the anyway. So I I was always kind of sensitive to turning on the the you know, FM radio and hearing anything from Sgt. Pepper. It always sounded a little different to me. Not bad though, by the way. Right. I think of the stereo mixes. As the narrative goes, you know, the Beatles and George Martin spent a lot of time on the mono mix. That was their focus. Right. That was their intent. And then the stereo mixes were kind of thrown together by, you know, kind of haphazardly or at least very quickly and usually by second engineers. And having said that, of the albums that had those separate stereo mixes that were kind of done quickly and not with tons of focus, Sarge, I thought Sarge was one of the one of the better ones. If you compare it to like Rubber Soul and and help. There's some really big differences, but the difference between mono and yeah, stereo more to work with. Yeah, exactly. Now, by the way, the old stereo mix. Did it ever hold this album back? Really? Anybody? No. Could there could could Sergeant Pepper have done a little better <laughs> in sales or or regard? Yeah. Or right. Okay. Overall so, impact. Overall impact. <laughs> okay. Fifty years later, we're still okay. So now there's that. So now I'm looking at a little bit of the press on this thing. Is it Giles Martin? Is that yeah. how you pronounce it? Who, by the okay, first of all, I'm giving a lot of credit. I loved the uh, remember that that the Love album, the one that goes with the Cirque yeah. du Soleil Beatles show. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I think I may have been in the minority there. I thought it was done with tons of heart. Um, it had to suit a different piece of art, that being the Beatles Love show. So, uh, but having said that, I thought it sounded great. I love the part where they would float, they'd fly in a little guitar riff from one song. Mm-hmm. Put it. It's a beetle mashup, but it's a mashup. The, it's a mashup, but right. it's sort of like I recognize that limb, but I don't. I can't remember from which body that just was. You know, they, they yeah. took that from. I I loved it. I loved it. So he earned my respect on that one in a big way. I thought, okay, we're we're in good hands here. And the remastering thing, job they did a few years ago that was fantastic. That brings us to this reissue. So yes, Giles did mention something about Sergeant Pepper. It's getting played in the in between a lot of modern music because of how we listen to music. This goes to Spotify in that world. And I did see mention of him talking. I think he may, no, he mentioned Kendrick Lamar, not Jay-Z, but Kendrick Lamar. Something about how it compares to. This, I, I have a problem with this. Interesting. Tell I have me a more. problem with this. Well, okay. In short, this just reminds me of, of, of Paul McCartney and Mick Jagger still dyeing their hair while they're in their 70s. <laughs> Yeah, there is a, there is an element of that. Why are you? I I just don't get it. Do you really not think Sergeant Pepper? If look, if it doesn't capture someone's imagination, if if Sergeant Pepper, without a bigger drum sound, um, doesn't make an impression on somebody, then then the loss. I mean, that person's just not going to be in the Sergeant Pepper. I don't know if giving it a more modern mix is really going to push somebody. Yeah, I don't know if the mix over changes the that. I don't think that Paul McCartney likes that idea that you just said. Like I don't, I just don't, and that's you know, that's what kind of what makes him him. But I don't think he's willing to kind of sit there and go, well, you know, if they don't like it, then they just, you know, I think he's like thinking about kids who have never 
see it never owned a CD or a tape sure. or a record. Sure. And he just wants them to hear it and because he knows that if they hear it that they're gonna love it and he just wants them to hear it. Is that why the bass is much more prominent on these new Oh my god, yeah. I'm, it's the, the whole bass thing. And drums. The whole yeah. thing is more modern and all of that ethereal reverb. I mean that's uh you know, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds introduced me to the idea of ethereal reverb, <laughs> which I use liberally as a, as a, you know, songwriter and a producer. And so it's just so funny to me that that was, it's, it's all but eradicated. You know, much of that is gone. You, you can hear kind of distant ambient reverbs now. Lucy in the Sky I listened on these headphones just to get the whole kind of micro experience. Mm-hmm. I was just fascinated by it, and it's so clear that that's what they're trying to do. And it is a very kind of Jimmy Iovine take, <laughs> take over the world kind of mentality. But that's Paul, now, and you know that's what he wants. Now, having said that, um, they did in the deluxe edition of the reissue, the, the four disc one, they did they release the mono mix as well. Okay. And it, and it's. I'm glad they did this. So because you can now a b this new stereo mix, with and I I can't tell. I I, spent a time, I don't know if this is, if they may have taken a little even more dust off of the mono mix from just a few years ago. But this, but Sergeant Pepper just sounds so great in mono. I'm sorry when that when the heart of that opening t- cut starts off, and I draw your attention to drums and bass. Mm. It's it's so good, and I think the mono mix has a lot to do with. Uh, the depth of the record, talk about depth mm. and ethereal reverbs, and I, to me, a day in the life and the reverb, the depth of that thing as a listening experience is very important because the idea here is we assume that John's part, the uh, the character that that reads the news and sees the movie and reads the book, that's reality. Then it cuts to Paul's bit. The reverb goes away. That's right. So now it feels like, wait a minute, is that reality? And the John side is the dream state, and the and the reverb on this, and the fact that yes, Ringo's drums are way in the back; they sound like bombs going off. They're the bombs from the movie. Um, there's such a picture uh, made, and um, I just I don't know, kind of, uh, you know, we're, are we preserving Sergeant Pepper? Or are we revising it? And if we're revising it, the whole idea of music is that it creates its own space, right? Right, recordings make their own space. You go to it for a different, for a certain feel of time and space. And so now that we've kind of moving things around a little bit to bring that here and now, mm-hmm. seems a little, I don't know, a little tricky to me. The most interesting quote that I read about this project was, uh, uh, he said, the producer, uh, mm-hmm. Giles. Giles said, um, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna mix it, if you're gonna remix it. You might as well do something different, but how do we be honest with with the intent sure. of, of these songwriters and these singers? And I just thought it was interesting. I I thought it sounded good, and I liked it. I definitely don't think it sounds better than the originals. Um, it leads to an, a, a larger conversation about how all these old records are just mastered too quiet, and when they come up on your shuffle next to a Kendrick Lamar track, it's just glaring. Right. And it's like, how do we how do we reconcile this? Because I think there would be a way to 
you know, maybe make it a little louder or a little more present without necessarily changing the overall sonic of it. I therefore I draw your attention to the mono mix. To the mono mix. They, right. they did it. They did it, and they didn't have to revise any of the the original. I don't know. Intriguing, Dave. Please. Say something, Say Dave. something, Dave. Shut me up. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, not just the technical stuff, but mm-hmm. just the extras that come with the four-disc okay. set. Okay. So you've got alternate versions of some of the songs. And by hearing some of these, like there's an instrumental version of Penny Lane mm-hmm. that has so much stuff not laid on it yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just to hear the clarity of certain things that laid underneath that you really didn't know were there. And right, because we don't think of Penny Lane as... as that four-piece combo playing like a band right. playing yeah and right in fact was not in fact yeah. and just to hear how how the uh these songs did evolve in the studio mm-hmm. uh some of the early takes like for example there's the assemblage of strawberry fields from the very beginning and these have been bootlegged before and i had the whole set from take yeah. one to the final take they never sounded this good It's great to have that insight and to have like the general public now be able to see what went into the making of this song that had so much built onto it from the very humble beginnings of it. Um, also, the, uh, the day in the life. Yeah, that's probably the most fascinating set of uh, outtakes for me is to hear how they were constructing that ending. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it ended with that massive piano chord. How many pianos did they use? Three. Three. Mm-hmm. Um, the original idea, as you'll hear on the box set, is not using pianos, but they wanted to try to use their voices to emulate a final chord. Correct. And the way they approach that, uh, it's been pointed out that it really kind of harkens back to just maybe within the previous year where they went to visit the Maharishi and, it, you know, that sort of a chant a chanting sort, kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And I, I thought that was really interesting, but then it must have been George Martin that just said, that's great. Let's try it with pianos. Mm-hmm. And uh, they present all. They present several of the vocal takes of the uh, the outro, which I think is a really interesting idea. It just comes up a little bit short, mm-hmm. both in length and just in in theory. But uh, then they include just about all of the piano outtakes, and that's really a lot of fun to hear. It's not a very long track, but just to hear all to the little mess ups, like oh, right. we didn't quite get, okay, okay. Oh, right. They're so funny to listen to in the studio. <laughs> that's it, and you know, and it's not like uh, we're getting gypped on studio banter here. You actually get uh, yeah. quite lengthy pieces where you hear them talk amongst themselves, and I just love it. Yeah, it just reminds me of the the movies. <laughs> Some of these examples you're talking about, as I listened through, really made me aware of of. Uh, you know, Paul, because Paul was was really the driver behind this record. Yeah. Uh, if anyone out there listening is not enough of a record nerd to just know that mm-hmm. this was Paul's baby, uh, he wrote most of the songs and and led the production, and his use of the multi piano, uh, you know, like Penny Lane has four and five pianos. Yeah. There's all mm-hmm. these pianos, right? It's at the end of day in a life. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of um, the kind of a lot of the songs have it. It's the chorus of Lucy in the Sky. You know, they all have this multi piano thing going on. Yeah, lovely Rita. Uh, and P- Penny Lane certainly does too. That was a big one. And they really, um, you know, he kind of got that from from Phil Spector and from Brian Wilson. They all got it from, from Phil Spector, mm-hmm. the multi piano thing. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting to see where they all kind of took it. Yeah. You know, 
Brian Wilson would replace it with other instruments, a lot more orchestral. Yeah. And Paul had this thing in 66 to 67 where he just put more pianos, <laughs> just more pianos all the time, and it's all over Sgt. Pepper. So that was just something, just a small thing that kind of jumped out to me. And you can see how he builds it yeah. over take one and two and three, and he's yeah. just running from piano to piano, just putting more on there. I think that we talk about Sgt. Pepper a lot because it was a pioneering piece of art. And I think if we want to really honor that pioneering spirit 50 years later, and you really want to make a, a, a big splash, release all the stems to the public. Have the people remix it. Ooh. Do something new. Wow. As something new as Sgt. Pepper was 50 years ago when you released it, just hand it all over and just say, you try. Go for it. Um, yeah, cue because, the Grey album. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> which I loved. Yeah. Which I loved. Yeah. Um, it was done uh, just like a couple of blocks behind us here in Mount Washington. Um, so, I don't know. I just, I just kind of feel like music listeners can do the math themselves in terms of, I realize this was recorded 50 years ago. Um, I have a nine-year-old knucklehead. She's always loved Sgt. Pepper. She hasn't needed a new mix. She she clearly gets it. Um, and I I just kind of and, and my kid's not that special. I'm just gonna <laughs> yeah. It's just it just you don't have to remix it for the kids. They'll get it. Now also one of the special things about Sgt. Pepper as I'm speaking of of uh, Brian Wilson, and obviously this was the Beatles' response to Pet Sounds on some level. Uh, I think that. The interesting thing about Pet Sounds, especially the opening cut, wouldn't it be nice, is that we actually heard uh, the voice of young people uh, hoping to be older, which was pretty novel. Uh, not a lot of rock and roll music featured that, right? Yearning to be, to have their independence, and wouldn't it be nice when we get older? Um, Sergeant Pepper, I think, addresses it and then kind of counters it in a much bigger picture. I really, ever since I was little, I always thought Sgt. Pepper was a very interesting take on the ideals of youth slamming up against the realities of adulthood. And um, that's why I know a lot of people don't like when I'm 64. They think it just kills the album. I think it's such a beautiful sonic relief coming out of Within You, Without You. Yeah, no kidding. You know, coming out of love. And then all of a sudden there's just this buoyant clarity and the woodwinds and it's... it. And also it displays, this album displays the huge breadth of influence that the Beatles could bring in to a, a, a string of songs, right? Because otherwise, I mean, I don't mean to denigrate, but, you know, when you listen to a Stones album from that era, you kind of go, okay, well, we got Helen Wolf, we got Chuck Berry, and Helen Wolf. You know, uh, you, the, the influences are yeah. Well, their, small. their audience was not, they were in, a, uh, in 67, the Beatles' audience did not quite think they were ever going to grow up. By, mm -hmm. by 69 and 70, I think that they realized that we're going to have to grow that up. they were yeah. going to have to grow up. But at that time, you know, it's it's the summer of love is described as idyllic. And it, I'm sure I wasn't there, but I'm sure it was. But I mean, they didn't think that they ever were going to be 64. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of that's what you're talking yes. about, this kind of interesting comment on, you know, because uh, it goes up against them. Um, you know, she's leaving home too. Is oh, that's obviously a big one. My God, yes. We got to listen to this the other night. I listened with uh, Rachel, my mm -hmm. girlfriend. We were talking about uh, Sergeant Pepper's, and she goes, "Can we just listen? Can we just listen to it?" And it's like, "Yes, of course." We listen to it. <laughs> so we put it on, and she's asking all these questions about Sergeant Pepper's, and I was just—I mean, it was great. I loved it. I think I might have found my my real true calling. I could be a college professor and just talk about the Beatles. Hell yeah! Not if anyone would care about that, but. You know, it was great to talk about it, and, and she's leaving home was just you know this 
Talk about this song. Okay, so did rock music ever have a song quite like this up until then where no, we got the parents' point of view? That to me is landmark. Maybe there's examples. Charlie Brown. No. Uh, <laughs> well, that was that was that was no, no, for, not for racial politics. Wait, wait. Um, wait, back up. Hold on. Yeah, Lieber and Stoller. Okay, well, that's another part of the, that's another whole other episode. But I mean, I just yakety yak. That's I, what I'm trying to say. Yakety yak is the parents' perspective. Right, but not but not with empathy. No. Right. The the, yeah. the parents are always the adults. The grown-ups are always the enemy. Right. And in this song. And I just, I cry every, I cried when I listened to it before I became a parent. Now that I'm a parent, now that I'm a father to a daughter, forget about it, mm -hmm. right? And um, they're, they're not mocking the parents or the parents' point of view. And the inevitability of this uh, young woman going out on her own is, is obvious. There's no argument against it. Uh, no one's even doing anything wrong necessarily. It's just this exquisitely balanced point of view about the, the two generations. We never thought of ourselves. Never a thought for ourselves. We struggled hard all our lives to get by. And this is before, you know, the band and their album where they had kind of like all their family on there or before um, uh, Tears of Rage. It all came later. All comes later. But it's somehow Paul, who mostly wrote She's Leaving Home, understood the balance. Of course, he scored a film called In the Family Way right. leading up to this. And so obviously that informs this song in a big, I big way. I remember this. Yeah. Okay. But um, I don't know. It's just, it's just an extraordinary piece of work. And uh, I think that the... Mono mix always kind of. I always got a feeling of, of a not quite a paranoia, but there's certainly certainly a darkness about the mono mix that I always really loved that I thought matched the narrative. Also, I want to. Uh, I'm reading this book. You mean a book? The, the you're, one of, you're one of those smart guys, huh? Well, <laughs> I'm holding it upside down. The <laughs> Language Instinct by Steven Pinker, and and it's about the human instinct to create language. And he has a sentence in here that I came across that says, uh, for you and I belong to a species with a remarkable ability. We can shape events in each other's brains with exquisite precision. Human beings with words. Picture yourself on a boat on a river. So, uh, what I love about Lucy and Sky is the, the first two words, picture yourself. It's the only thing that happens in reality for the entire song. Everything after that. Is completely imaginary. He, it's never an analogy for something happening in reality, right? Like, there's never, meanwhile, in real life, this is going on. No, the whole thing is just, he's just painting a picture. And by the way, and I, uh, Roger Waters' new album, there's a song, it begins with Picture Yourself. You put those two words together, I think they're always going to, for the most part, going to be tied to this song, that album. Mm -hmm. That's how huge this thing is. You know, you can grab any combination of words and uh it's just that it's just that big of a deal it's just it's just part of our our carmen parlance i think uh, at least at least until we all die and forget about this album which i don't know if i don't know if that's gonna it's ever gonna happen you know uh, do you guys have a have you always had a favorite track from this album and has that changed with anything over the years the new i mixes? really love uh, track one waiting for the man that's a great uh, that's probably my favorite track is that with the tangerine that you can peel off on the cover 
Um, uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Easy. It's yeah. easy for me. Is it really? And oh, I wow. lo- and I love the Sgt. Pepper uh, the the re the remake of Sgt. Pepper. For years That's that the re- the reprise was always my favorite. Something about just that Paul's count and Ringo's drums. And it's the only yeah. thing anywhere close to being a live cut on the whole thing. Yeah, they, it's the only thing that's the band just playing in a room somewhere. Yeah, they're in, yeah they went to the they went to a soundstage, and the larger it. room. The, yeah, they went to room. the larger studio, but then baffled themselves in really s- close proximity. So there's a lot of bleed going on there, and so yeah, it sounds like a rock band. Yeah, and uh, but but now, boy, yeah, again, you know, father to a daughter, so she's leaving home is pretty hard to ignore. Yeah, for me, for me, for me, I I always loved uh, getting better, and I think it mm-hmm. just sounds phenomenal on this mix. But a close close second would be Lovely Rita. Yeah, Lovely Rita is cool. But, you know, you say getting better. To me, when people talk about the Beatles sound and the Beatles bounce and a lot of these things yeah. that remind the ear of the Beatles when mm-hmm. you're mixing mm-hmm. a record or making a record, it goes back to that song in particular. That is just such a such an iconic uh, Beatles-sounding record. Yeah, yeah. interesting. It goes, jank, 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 jank. It has that bounce, you know. And, and the, the call and, and answer part. The call and answer yep. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, very John and Paul yeah, kind of talking yeah. to one another in the writing and the delivery. That's probably why I love it so much, that yeah. relationship between those two. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah. can work it out. My favorite track <laughs> from Sergeant Peppers. <laughs> now you're making fun of me. You got, you got all sorts of angry email. Uh, again, just, just re- remixing the thing. It's just, you're just colorizing episodes of Gilligan's Island. You're not, it's. Yeah, so just, can it really get any better? And, uh, I mean, apparently not. Get off my lawn. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) You know. So 1967, what else came out? Anything? Were the Velvets around yet? Uh, The Velvets were a big deal for me. uh, At least, okay. So I went through many articles and lists this this week that are all talking about this because it's a fit, you know, so everyone has an opinion. And I was going through a lot of these lists. And although many of these artists are my favorite artists, I don't find myself reaching for many of these records, many of their mm. records from 1967. I agree. And I think that the reason for this is that they were all really reaching uh, at that time. Everyone was really reaching. And a lot of that is, is the Beatles and Bob mm-hmm. Dylan and Brian Wilson and the, giant, the titans of the industry really kind of breaking the doors open. So everyone is really reaching. And there's a lot of really great music, but you can hear that reach. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. can really hear it. Like an egregious example would be the Rolling Stones, Satanic <laughs> Majesty's Last Request, or whatever that piece of shit record is called. <laughs> that was an unfortunate yeah. entry for them on that year. Yeah. And it's '68. It comes out in early '68. It's not a '67 record, but it is clearly like in they the wake it, of Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah. And so a lot of music from this era has this scope and this reach, and it's kind of annoying mm-hmm. for me to kind of listen to it. And I'm not a baby boomer, so there's also so I can kind of pick and choose. Yeah. There's a Heinz. Well, there's a yeah, a lot of my favorite stuff from 1967 was not released on a record in 1967. Two big examples mm-hmm. I thought of would be uh, music from Big Pink and the Basement Tapes. Much of that was recorded in 1967. Okay, uh, and then also uh, Otis at Monterey uh-huh. and Otis Live. There's a record called Otis Live in Europe released in 67, that which was hot. indicative of what he was doing yeah. at Monterey, which broke him nationally. And, you know, it, a lot of it is not recorded on a record and released per se. But those are a couple of big things. And, of course, the Velvet Underground and Nico. Yeah. Which but, is the one that I really read. I mean, if I'm, like, going to play an album regularly from the year 67, that's, that's the one. That's one that I can do yeah, over and over. Oddly enough, that album, uh, well, in those first couple of Velvet records, they, what is it? Is it because they're just a very lean that they, they, I would assume that they would have dated poorly, but they never dated poorly. No, they haven't. 
What is it? They're just streamlined. They're so man. He's he's just really good. <laughs> L- so. Lou Reed yeah. is really really good, and it's it's really cool to me when someone who can really write pop uh, is it such a twisted kind of a guy. Oh yeah, he gives. I, voice. I don't know how else to put. I mean, it's like the the subjects that he talks about mm-hmm. are very dark, very twisted. And he is like a, uh, basically he was like a Brill building songwriter. Isn't that funny to think mm-hmm. that he actually yeah. thought he was good? <laughs> like, but he's really good at it. No, no, he's, he's good, so but... good at like hooks. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like those these songs have hooks. Like everything is a hook. Yeah. In these songs, and yes. But like they're just not the tr- they're not like Neil Diamond's hooks, but they are hooks. <laughs> Even the way they he are delivers. dressed up differently. Yeah. From Neil Diamond's. Yeah, hooks, yeah. But, but he clearly not understands different. that. Uh, the way Call I'm and gonna, response, the w- like just the mo- the most basic elements of of writing for a pop audience, he understands these things just intrinsically. Yeah. Also, I think that uh, as the cliche goes, it influenced so much of rock later of on huge. that that it it doesn't sound dated because it's it's inside oh, of yes, R- because you're yeah, hearing it in so many other bands. Of, and of course, today. in hindsight too, and this doesn't affect as much of why I like it, but in hindsight, it's really the only thing that is really dark. I mean, so much of these records are all sunshine and rainbows and everything, and this record is not really that way. It's kind of dark. Yeah. And it's where The Doors debut album, 67, 67? Yeah, um, two records. It's Strange Days, well, that's two right. 67. Well, did, did uh, Strange Days come out in early 68? It's 67. It's cut Was it 67? 67? They, they both were released in 67, yeah. so according, to, according to my data. Okay. <laughs> if that's the case, then, who else put out two albums first two albums in 67 you got a hand up in the back a hand up in the back here like yeah jimmy hendrix yes yeah that was yeah wow right gene would have got it too that, that was not those hard. two bands <laughs> that was not hard <laughs> professor rayburn that yeah. was uh, <laughs> that was a bud that's right <laughs> yeah um yeah the okay so hendrix that to me is a, that's a, there's a lot going on there uh and ah uh, yeah Whew. that's pretty big great tone great great studio Wha- guy yeah. A lot of interesting stuff going on in that album, obviously. And then, of course, I grew up with the U.S. version, so I'm, I'm used to the, the non-Red House. I just House. can't believe all these guys putting making two records a year. and put, I mean, that is just <laughs> absolutely insane. Yeah. And, and being on the road at the same oh, yeah. time, you know. Yeah. yeah. It just dashed in and made a record. Crazy yeah. to think about. Yeah. Fast it, times. It's, it's pretty heavy. So everybody, write into your favorite 1967 album, and we'll... Make fun of you. Make fun of you. Or, yeah. no... Well, Brian will. I will. <laughs> we might read some on the air for the next episode. Uh, now, I uh, had an experience. Uh, okay, Brian. Yes, uh, I never got to see this guy live. Talk to me about Bob Seger. Oh, yeah, Bob Seger. Well, my dad uh, he was, uh, was and is a huge Bob Seger fan, which, uh, you know, he, he's a West, a, a West Coast lifer, so I don't know how that happened, but somehow mm. that, that music really spoke to him. And we were able to go see him when I was, uh, man, I must have been uh, 14 or 15. I was in high school, and we drove from San Jose to see him at the Oakland Coliseum. And it was oh, cool. a very, very good rock show. Great band, It was right? a great band. That would be the Silver Bullet, Silver Bullet band, band. Yeah. Uh, featuring Alto Reed. Yes, <laughs> right. Oh, Had a great the sax The hair guy. and mustaches that band had. Was... the odds of being named that and then becoming a sax player? Yeah, and right. that's his given name. That's the, that's the real mind-blower. crazy. I, uh, I have Did he a... feel obligated to become what he became? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was, uh, I have this image that I can't erase. Not that I would want to, but it's just permanently, I couldn't, uh, couldn't forget this. Of Alto standing on one leg, stand, leaning back with uh, one leg out, kicked out in front of him, and then 
raising the saxophone back over his head and yeah. just wailing, and they put a spot on him. Uh-huh. So his silhouette was on the back wall of the oh, Oakland cool. Coliseum oh, wow. at 100 feet tall or something like that. And that was a very And Rob Lowe could cool never movie. pull that off and say no was fire as much as he tried. <laughs> um, so so we did the... Uh, we mean, Dwight, we did some shows last week, and uh, well, one of them was uh, this guy, Frankie Ballard. Was that, you, you know Frankie Ballard's stuff? Nope. I like this guy a lot. Um, and uh, he, he's a young country artist. Uh, mm. He's been at it for a while. And um, where's he from? He's originally from Michigan. Michigan, okay. He's originally from Michigan. Like he's it. based in Nashville now. But what I loved about this, a lot of things about his set I loved. Uh, first of all, it's a four piece, and both Frankie and his guitar player Eddie, it's like it's a twin lead mm, attack. Love it. Love everything you're Dude, saying. They just rock. Mm-hmm. They just come out. Frankie's a hot guitar player, good front man. And I'll tell you what, Frankie will set that guitar down, and these dudes just plow through as a trio, and they know what they're doing. These guys know what they're doing. And, and Frankie's got a fire in his belly. Um, I, there's just something about the guy I kind of like. And uh, towards the end of the set, they kind of have this groove going. And Frankie's talking to the audience a little bit. And I keep thinking about and I And, he, and he starts this little bit of a melody line underneath. And I'm thinking, I know this. How do I know this? I don't know how I know this. And uh, he does a, co- a cover of uh, Accompany Me. Oh, Seeger's yeah. Company Me, right? Sounds great. Changes it just a little, not you know, just enough. Um, and so you're sitting here listening, thinking, God, God, how great is this song? And then, uh, I heard uh, Still the Same uh, a couple weeks prior to this, and uh, just thought, How great is this song? The point of view of this song. And I remember, remember, the and uh, Bob Costas had a, a one on one interview show that would come on after Letterman back when Letterman was still on NBC, the late. Late, 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 late. Mm-hmm. Costas had Seeger on one night, and Costas starts talking to him about still the same. I guess Costas's dad. Now I'm just remembering this from over 20 years ago, so I could be wrong. But Costas, I guess his father had a bit of a gambling problem, and Costas talked about what that song meant to him, and and as a reflection of his father. I just remember the, in watching Seeger just listen to this guy talk about the effect that this song had uh, as, a, as a level of comfort and helped him understand his father, right? And um, so then I started digging into the old Seeger records. And, uh, and I just started thinking to myself, do we, do we not talk about Bob Seeger enough? I know Kid Rock does a lot, but do music, <laughs> I, is he underrated? Does he, does he get shadowed by Springsteen? He's on the radio a lot. He is on the radio a lot. He's on though. the radio a lot, and so anyone that's on the radio that much, I'm not going to have the underrated conversation. You're not feeling sorry uh, for Bob. Well, at least not in terms of exposure. But I will, I will give you this: as a songwriter, he doesn't get talked about with a lot of the guys from his generation. That's what I'm talking about, I guess. Yeah, as a songwriter, like a lot of people would rather give that torch to like Mellencamp, you know, who who came a little later, but yeah. not mind a lot of the same kind of territory. Sure. And a lot mm-hmm. of these guys who write, even throwing John Hyatt and some of these people who sure. write about. Uh, middle age 
you know, which is like a lot of Springsteen's biggest hits are yeah. are not about teenage rebellion. He has a song called Night Moves that's about the memory of teenage rebellion. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's, you know, he's not talked about that way. It's a really unique perspective that he has as a writer. Yeah, or or uh, yeah, I could go on about I, which maybe was what you were saying. Maybe we're it is it, you know, no, you actually made it clear. I, I didn't I didn't state it clearly. As a songwriter, I just feel as though we kind of just we go right past it for some reason. And I think um, you know, I think you say Seeger, and people may just think old time rock and roll. Well, again, a, a, a song yeah, you of say reflection. Seeger, I say Sager. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, say old time rock and roll. Yes, it's a recollection. Right, get yeah. those old records off the shelf. Right. Pete Seeger records? Not that old. Back to the Seeger thing. Yeah. I, I never got to see him live. Uh, I had an opportunity on the American Storm tour. Uh, a friend of mine and I, we bought uh, a trio of tickets. We were going to go pick up a friend of ours that went to study abroad and was coming back from a semester. We were going to pick him up at the airport, blindfold him. I don't think you can do that now. Um, <laughs> and they frown on that. Right. Yeah. We're going to blindfold him, put him in the car, take him straight into the venue, uh, which was the Forum, I believe, the L.A. Forum, set him down in his seat, and then, hey, welcome back. Here's Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. Uh, So we get, like, a last-minute word that, like, his plane is delayed at Heathrow, and he wasn't going to be coming in. So we just decided we can't go without him. And and so we went there to, to, you know, resell the tickets. And I got to hear the entire sound check and actually see a little sliver of it through the doors mm. uh, that you could kind of see through one of the okay one of the hallways. Okay, and and I'm like, okay, I'll just get him next time. And we sold our tickets and left. I've never seen him since. There wasn't any like it's I, I don't. Trouble, it's a troubling story. It is, but you know what? And this is another. Okay, so just to stack up, <laughs> stack up the regrets here. There's that. But then come. Well, last, I don't want to play that game. We're gonna oh, be sitting here for yeah. a while. Yeah. Last year. <laughs> <laughs> Last year, Seeger came to play the the revamped uh, forum, right? Because uh-huh. they have the new sound and everything in there. Mm-hmm. I haven't been there since they've done that. Yeah, he came to play there with Jay Giles Band opening. Oh, <laughs> Jay Giles Band, uh, Love Stinks record was the very first album laughing. I ever owned, oh, and cool. so that would have been like another special thing. I somehow just passed up on that, and then of course Jay Giles just yeah. you know passes away, and I'm like. Oh, or regret. Okay, but then this last week, Gene, when you mentioned, "Hey, let's maybe talk about Seeger." Yeah, the announcement came that uh, that Bob's actually planning some shows, and there's going to be a a tour to follow that, and that he's working on a new record. But the the rumors are that is this the last tour? Coinciding with that, there's this classic East, classic West tour. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not really a tour. It's like what East Coast one set of shows, and then West yeah. Coast another set, and then it's done with. What Fleetwood Mac, Eagles, Doobie Brothers, Steely Dan, mm. Earth, Wind, and Fire—the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so the Eagles are are getting back to to do their thing without Glenn Fry, and everybody's wondering who's going to replace Glenn Fry. And in the back of my mind, I mean, they just announced this week that it's going to be Glenn's son Deacon, right. as well as um, Vince Gill. Vince Gill, right? And I think he was like heavily involved in that uh, Eagles country tribute record mm-hmm. from the '90s, I believe. Uh, but I was always thinking. Who are they going to get? Who would make sense? Who was really important to Glenn early on? Bob Seger. Bob Seger. Yeah, Good I could call. completely Good see call. him pulling these songs off, not sounding like Glenn necessarily. Well, no, but it, it's, it's not so much that he would have to sound like Glenn, but I think he sounds so much like Bob Seger. This would be this would be like the Mike, you Michael think that McDonald would steal the thunder effect. 
Well, I just like as a as a vocal blend. I don't even know where to, I don't even know where to hang my hat on this. <laughs> no, no. What I'm saying was, see, I mean the the Eagles. It's a harmony act, and. Yeah. And yeah, that's we, not really Bob Seger. Yeah. Bob Seger's blue-eyed soul mo- yeah. from the Motor City. Yeah. See? So Smart he could Liz. sing Heartache tonight, which he wrote the chorus for. That's right. Get up and sing that one. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he's not going to, I don't know, sing, I'd love, I hear him sing Take It Easy. That might be cool. <laughs> I don't know. That's where Deacon comes in. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Now, uh, now, as I'm looking at my, at my, my, my vinyl copy of uh, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit Live from Welcome to 1979. Reminds me that uh, this yeah. man has a new album out as well. He does. And uh, it's called The Nashville Sound. Love that. Which I think is a very biting commentary. Don't you? Uh, That's yeah. how I take it. Uh, yeah. I I enjoyed this uh, record a lot of all of the, I think there were maybe six records to listen to. I would say this is my favorite. I think the guy is really consistent and is obviously a you know, triple threat with everything that he does. But yeah, uh, the song uh, White Man's World, yeah. which is the, um, which actually contains the line about the Nashville sound, is a, is a biting song about uh, more, than, more than just race, which is what it might appear to be about on its surface. It's kind of about everything. And it doesn't sound, you know, he's not alone here because Sturgill Simpson has mentioned this right. too, but it just doesn't sound like he really thinks that Nashville is all that. I think I think it would be safe to say he has conflicted feelings about Nashville. Mm-hmm. Sure, you know he's he's from the south, you know it's further south than Nashville. Yeah, um, but you know he's made his career there and and works there. But I think that there's uh, I think that there's some problems that he has with it too. It really sounds like it from a couple of these songs. This is, uh, in my opinion, it seems like Jason's most political album uh, as of yet. Now it was funny because I know that he he became a father in between the last album and this one. So I kind of thought there'd be a lot of fatherhood uh, on this album. Uh, and maybe... He mentions his little girl he men- a couple he mentions, of songs. He yeah. mentions, but yeah. it's... it's. Uh, I think maybe having a... I don't know. If, if having the child made him look at the, wor- the, the world, you know, in a, in a larger sense and how he views it because of this greater concern now, you know, when you become a father, that, that, that does happen. Um, but what's great is he's never preaching. And... He always writes about these political issues via a character. It's very Springsteen, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's not like this is happening in the world, and here's what I think about it. I mean, he's in there. The good good writers like Springsteen can can write from a point of view of a character, and they're they're they shine through what they think yeah. and who they are can shine through. If you're a good writer, which I think Jason is, yeah. so Even when he's in a character, it's a uh, it is not a brilliant disguise, but, ah! ra- but rather a thinly veiled kind of disguise. You know what I mean? Um, but, I, but it seems as though, so there's two books. Sorry, I've, Jason. I'm having fun. <laughs> two, two books I've read recently. Um, one is Hillbilly Elegy mm-hmm. which, right. uh, by J.D. Vance, uh, which is a personal memoir. It's a guy in his early 30s, but uh, he was born in Hillbilly, Appalachia, but he went on to Harvard Law, and he just writes about his family's history and sort of the the tortured history of what it is to be hillbilly in a modern America and, and the rough transition to becoming an industrialized uh, community and the challenges involved there. And also the other one is called Dreamland, which is about the uh, opiate epidemic uh, that's been just ravishing this country and particularly the central part of this country. And uh, the statistics are just, uh, they're just mind boggling, right? about the, with the opiate overdose and how many people been are using them, how many started with prescription, and of course they couldn't get those anymore and they've moved on to 
black tar heroin and it's just very depressing and it's hitting a huge chunk of this certain demographic and i think that jason seems i think the reason he calls it nashville sound is like how how can nashville represent country music which has gone big tent and that's why it's been so successful country music and nashville they you like hip-hop we'll put a little of that in our in our stew right. you like uh, classic rock we'll throw a little bit of that in that stew what else you like we're going to put it all in that stew. Big Ten. Everybody's welcome. It seems remarkable that a lot of the music out of Nashville hasn't had anything to say about this overwhelming problem in, in, in the Midwestern states of America. Um, and I think it's, I thought that was, if I were to read into it, calling it this album The Nashville Sound is Jason's way of kind of hitting the trash can lid with a, with a stick saying, hey, wake up, everybody. You know, are we really not going to talk about this? And so that's what—that's how I kind of get it. Right. Well, the stuff that they market <clears throat> on the uh, pop country side, mm-hmm. you know, they're never going to talk about anything topical because it's not feel good. The most I that they'll say is, you know, my job and the government are getting me down, but it's Friday night and now I'm going to go party my balls off somewhere. Yeah. So that's where that's where they're at with that. Now the Americana side, I—I uh, I think that there are uh, a lot of people that are talking about some of these things, but so many of them are well under the radar yeah they're not getting heard that you you'd have to it'd have to be stapleton or uh, sturgill yeah or you know and then and now jason isbell and you know ryan adams could do that uh-huh. but he only writes heartbreak songs so right, right so it's definitely <laughs> you know it's definitely kind of on jason and he seems to have picked up this mantle which i think is is what you're saying yeah yeah and uh and and another thing you said, which I thought was interesting, was to to examine the complexity of his relationship to the city of Nashville, mm-hmm. which I, I think is part of why it's called the Nashville Sound. I mm-hmm. think part of it is is a larger political point that you're talking about. Yeah. But you know, Nashville for a lot of these guys is like an iron lung, where <laughs> I think they kind of need it to survive yeah. and to compete and to be relevant, whatever however you want to describe that. But it takes something from them as well because it's just kind of a, it's just kind of a weird. There's a lot of weirdness within the industry down there. You know what I mean? I don't think it's unlike the the movie business here. Sure, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where you know there's just a lot of uh, there's just a lot of bullshit hmm. that you have to kind of wade through, and from the five minutes I've spent with Jason Isbell in my life, I get to feel. And from listening to his records, it seems like he doesn't really like bullshit that much. That's right. But but he has to wade through tons of it living That's, in Nashville mm-hmm. and being in this industry and competing at the level at which he's competing, which mm-hmm. is a high level. Yeah, it, it is a high level. I um, And I'm not even asking the modern pop side of country to sound like older the older artists. I just think that there's examples of masterful country artists who are wildly successful, Merle Haggard, who could write about societal concerns in character uh and and have a massive hit uh tammy wynette uh there's big big laura delin big big Mm. country hits that discuss um social issues uh with uh with a lot of heart uh with a lot of uh a lot of sympathy and uh, I think country music uh, is suited to that format really, really well because it's about the narrative. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a shame that, that more aren't doing it. I, I, I don't want them to 
you know, change the sound of the records. It'd be just be kind of nice if some of the best songwriting minds in Nashville could kind of address us a bit. You, Brian, you yeah. said something years ago about country music that I thought was really interesting. That it has I always was just been, about to say it again. It's yeah. Always been able to absorb. It's very resilient. Things. Very resilient. Right. I explained that a little bit. I, well, no, I mean, you mentioned it in terms of if you want hip hop or heavy metal in your sound, they will they will put it in there for you in terms of top forty. It, it isn't even just top forty because if you look at the Americana kind of music group and AMA and everything like that, those artists, it doesn't sound like any one thing. Yeah. There's blues and country and jazz and lots mm -hmm. and lots of different things coming through there, but it's a very resilient, it's short, I'm making it longer than it needs to be. It's a very resilient form of music and but it can really examples. take, huh? You gave examples once though, like in the fifties. Well, so like in the seventies, it absorbed disco right. and became outlaw yeah. country, right? Um, you know, in the uh, in the '60s, it kind of absorbed a lot of uh, kind of big band and orchestral sounds right. uh, to kind of compete with Frank Sinatra records and stuff because they kind of thought that rock and roll was they weren't going to compete with it. They weren't going to get down on that level mm -hmm. in Nashville, and so they kind of went this other direction of a more glossy kind of music. So that's a lot of the George Jones and Loretta Lynn stuff that you're talking right. about. You know. Um, uh, in the 90s, it absorbed, uh, you know, basically big stadium rock. Yeah. You know what I mean? Get Garth Brooks and Shania Twain were trying to be like big rock bands, but they were Nashville country bands, you know. And now you have heavy metal, uh, certainly hip hop and, yeah. and you know, kind of Jack Johnson bro pop or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call that kind of stuff mm -hmm. has all been absorbed into it. Because, you know, when your audience is a lot of young white people and especially a lot of young white girls you need to figure out what is going to make those people tick and sure. if it's hip-hop or jack johnson or heavy metal right they just kind of inject it in there and then you have the florida georgia line right and, and it's, it's not to say and you know but it's, it's still country say, music but yeah and it's it, right in a tradition it is it's not it's not out of it's it's easy to just view that as as nashville or country music being crass Man. It's and, not. It's not necessarily. It's just. It's what it's always done. And anytime those guys, yeah. so like not not the Jason Isbell's of the world, but like the Florida Georgia lines of the world. Anytime they try to do anything topical, they screw it up very badly. I will direct you to a song called "Accidental Racist" yeah, okay. by Brad pa by Brad Paisley. <laughs> okay. So he was trying to do what you're he talking tried. about. He's like, look, I have this platform, right. And I'm yeah. going to do. And he screwed it up horribly. But and he made a song that was. Actually, just offensive. Yeah, he wasn't an accidental racist. <laughs> but he, he was went just to the plate and he and he took a swing. Okay, I, I will get. He took a swing, and and I think that had he not been, had it not been so rare that a country or established country artist <laughs> yeah. had taken okay. a swing, it right. wouldn't have been. Yeah, such it wouldn't a, have made such a big splash. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. I'll give you that. That's just you know, David, your take on the Jason Isbell. Record. Yeah, for me, I, I'm kind of late to the game on J Jason Isbell. Uh, Gene, you had turned me on to him primarily in episode one. Oh, okay. Uh, I forget the name of the song that uh, 24 frames 24 frames yes that I, that song kept playing in my head for weeks after we recorded that episode and uh, it just yeah and along with your story to go with it it just hits home with you know our adult reality so with this record I wasn't looking at the the political songs as much as the one song that really slapped me in the face which was if we were vampires a quiet acoustic song, obviously not conforming to any of the modern that produced sounds. Goes towards your tastes. It's towards yeah. It's this one's for me. Yeah. Right. The lyrics on this one just talks about how we as a couple uh -huh. may have forty years together. That's kind of. I mean, I, I look at it mm. as sort of a 
a really meaningful, almost romantic kind of thing. But, you know, I played a song for my girlfriend the other day. So you got to hear this. I just, I love you so much, and I want you to hear this song because this means a lot to me. Did you bum her out? Prof- and she's all, that's very sad. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's knowing that this can't go on forever. Likely one of us will have to spend some days alone. Maybe we'll get 40 years together. But one day I'll be gone. One day you'll be gone. We were vampires and death was a joke. Saying that, like, okay, if we were vampires, obviously vampires live forever. There's no, uh, uh-huh. you know, end in sight. And there's no So there's no reason to, like, I need to hold your hand on this plane flight. <laughs> uh, because we're going to live through it, right? No. Yeah, we're vampires. No. Death, death, death is what makes this matter. Yeah. And, you know, I just turned 48, and I'm thinking, well... How much? How I'm not, many more I'm, sunsets? Do I'm not I have? really thinking like uh, you know, as we were talking about you know with the Beatles earlier. Yeah, how sorry, kid, generations yeah, when I'm 64. Yeah, we like we're not ever going to grow up. I'm at the age now to where it's like I'm grown up, and as Springsteen put it on this last River tour, you only have a limited amount of time to do the work you need and want to do, mm-hmm. and focus on that and do that work. And That's right. you know, at this point in my life, I'm looking at what's left, about what do I have left, what do I need to do to make this world better, to make my life better, to make my family better. This song really addressed that for me, and I can't think of another song similar to this on the topic of a relationship. Yeah. Can you? Uh, yeah, there's uh, a friend of ours, John Hoskinson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that writes a song you hear it and you just you just god, god damn it why didn't i write that song he has a song called i hope i die before you do and and i, I remember my wife and i for years just like god that just nails it it's it's the per- it's it, it's as good as the line what's the uh my parents have had this conversation i mean they have they're, they're well they're 70 years old and they have this this like kind a, of a joking conversation which is the lyrics for John Hoskinson's song. It's somewhat <laughs> you know? Schadenfreude, right? It's it's like the line that Bono sings in uh, "Do They Know It's Christmas?" Is he well tonight? Thank God it's them instead of you. Yeah, which is a brutal thing to say. Yeah, but it's no less truthful. Um, so uh, yeah, so John Hoskinson's "I Hope I Do," and he, and he does it to a really bouncy, poppy right. sort of track. But but can you hear me that that Takamini? That's right. There's something I just realized about the song Twenty Four Frames." Uh, the other day was the, the the main guitar hook. Oh, it's out of tune. Uh, Here, talk let, amongst yourselves. Let me uh, let me tech for you. Okay. <laughs> make oh. <laughs> no. Um, so uh, I was listening to the song. All I want is <laughs> a spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> it's the return of Stevie Moore. That's a very inside joke. So. The, the riff to 24 frames. What is that? Something else. I know. What is that? I'm 
I'm sorry. My, my, just tell me. No expectations by the Stones. Oh, no expectations by the Stones. I don't know if Jason nice meant it. If he's if he's huh. telegraphing, because 24 Frames is about not taking a moment for granted. Yeah. And does he mean to plant the idea of no expectations in my brain by using the lick, kind of the melody? I don't know. I'm, I may have been overthinking <laughs> it, but it made the song even better for me. You just created an internet thread. You'll, you'll probably you'll probably see him soon. You can ask him. I hope so. Yeah, oh, I, yeah, I'll, I, yeah I probably could ask. I don't know. I would ruin it by asking him that. I always wonder because uh, Elvis <laughs> Costello's song, uh, Tramp the Dirt Down, which is a very negative song about Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. And the melody always reminded me of Stevie Wonder's Isn't She Lovely? And I didn't know if he meant for me to think, uh-huh. ironically, Isn't She Lovely? Uh-huh. While he's essentially <laughs> wishing for Margaret Thatcher. Because Elvis Costello will find a, a hidden way to be mean in, in <laughs> yeah. addition to the most obvious uh, meanness that I'm already putting in the song. He's a layer cake of meanness, yeah. this guy. Uh, uh, Dave went and saw Costello last yeah, night. last night. Right, yes. An interesting thing too, and I'm going to have to go home and listen to this, and I'll I'll be hearing it fresh now. But I guess he was talked about how okay earlier we played watch, watching the detectives, mm-hmm. and he he explains what that's about. You know, it's the woman that's watching these TV. cop shows and it's driving the the husband crazy and everything. He says this next song is the sequel to that, and I guess the long honeymoon was. Sort oh, of really? his intended sequel for that. So now I got to go spend some time with that. Too. I like sequel songs. <laughs> no, just you know, sequel. If it's another artist responding to to uh, previous, oh, some another, right. or even an artist kind of updating it. Chuck Berry was great, but we talked a little about that maybe last episode about how Chuck Berry would update his own mm-hmm. his own. Yeah, song. where's Johnny? Be good now. Yeah, bye bye, bye Johnny. Yeah, yeah. Or um, oh, um, you know, Memphis got a, an update in the song Marie. Oh, okay. Um, I was just kind of thought, oh, it's kind of lovely, you know. And all that these... new Chuck record's coming out pretty soon. I know, yeah. Have just you around the corner. Yet? I did hear one track. The, the track yeah, that Morello's on, yeah. Chuck, it's like I didn't quite recognize his voice. He sounds. Oh yeah, it's a little different. Yeah. Oh, oh, tell us about. Oh, that's right. <laughs> tell us about playing piano. I forgot you played I, piano I, for I Chuck Berry. Appreci- I appreciated oh, yeah. the uh, shout oh, out oh, God, in your God. last yeah. episode. That's right. So, so tell us about this because obviously Chuck. It was like sitting next to a coiled rattlesnake. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 in, in, in all seriousness, it was, uh, yeah, you, it, uh, like a religious experience and just one of the greatest nights of my life. Uh, April Fools. It was, it was on April 1st, really? Uh, yeah, of 2009 or something like that, Somewhere 2010 around, maybe. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, and how did he, he was really, I mean, you know, he was not in good shape. You know, his health was not great. And his mind, I don't, I don't think his mind was all there. But for a guy who's been messing with the pickup band and the audience and the promoter yeah. for his whole career, it's hard to know How can you tell? where mm-hmm. the senility starts, mm-hmm. you know, and where the personality ends. Mm-hmm. Um, but he definitely had some funny. Uh, he had this issue with the cameras that were going up to the the big monitors because there were monitors to the left and right of the stage that had these feeds, and so they were cameramen and then. Um, he has a no camera thing in his contract. So he thought that there were people just videoing him and taking For personal pictures. use. And so he kept stopping the show to yell at, uh, to yell at these people. I don't want any pictures. You know, I told you it's not going to be a show, you know, if you keep taking pictures. And then he would eventually figure it out. He goes, oh, those are going to the, to the oh, sc- okay, those are going to the screens. Okay, we can have fun now. <laughs> and he kept kind of slipping back and forth. And at one point, 
during <laughs> reeling and rocking. Re, yeah, reeling and rocking. <laughs> he goes, "Well, look at my watch. It was nine forty-one." I said, "If you don't get those cameras out of my face, we're going to have a problem." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it was really great. So, but I mean, I look. I didn't even. I didn't even practice for this gig. Like I've been practicing for this gig my whole life. That's right. So I didn't like sit there and learn. I was. Just, I knew that I would be able to do anything that he wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, and we actually had a few moments of of real good music in there. You and he know came over, I mean? sat on the piano bench. Came next over to you? and uh. well, in the bass player, he brings this bass player with him, who's like his minder and his yeah. driver. And the bass player is calling out the keys all night to what is happening. And uh, he told me before the show because I never met Chuck or talked to Chuck this whole night, right? Only on stage. But the bass player told me he goes, "Look, you know, if he likes you, he's gonna let you play." And if he doesn't like you, he's just going to ignore you and take all the solos himself. And I said, okay, fair enough. <laughs> but I was playing all night. And he was coming over, hanging out by the piano, yelling kind of these exhortations at me, <laughs> sitting next to me on the piano bench, take another solo, kid, the whole nine wow. yards. It was really great. Love that. Fantastic. That's one of those moments where you're like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Uh-huh. You know, in spite of everything that kind of comes with this choice in this life, it's like, okay. Because it's like, I didn't screw it up. I, <laughs> no- I knocked it out of the park without preparing for it. Yeah. Which is enough for me to know, like, hey, this is where I'm, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Wow. Yeah. Powerful I love stuff. that story. I just love that story. <laughs> I, I really, really do. It, there's something about that. Just, it just, I just think it's fantastic. Well, I've always loved his music and I see myself as a purveyor of that music. Yeah. As I kind of go forward in my, in my solo career you know and again i'm putting that word in quotes but it's it's really it's you know it's really important music to me you know we're talking about you know music from 1967 and and for me it's like what i really care about is chuck berry and jerry lee lewis from 1955 and 56 because the you know this stuff to me is just it's where it all comes from yep (sighs) i love that story I, just, I was so happy. <laughs> Tell man. it again. I was so happy <laughs> I when it. it happened for you, man. I just, I, I, I just love hearing that story over and over again. Uh, anyway, so uh, I think we're about out of time. Have we not? Yeah, we can enough? do the. What, uh, what do we have left over? We buddy? could do the what we're listening to segment. Dave, you go. All right. Well, lately, uh, there's a few things that have uh, been floating my boat. The new Dan Auerbach. Yeah. From Black have you Keys. heard that, Brian? Well, I heard it. Yeah, I heard it. Uh, so you, you. Oh, that's it, right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Is that not a total Jeff Lynn thing? Oh yeah, I just I it's funny because we've talked about like of all production styles that have been mimicked, you know, this Phil Spector and thing. a McCartney thing too. Yeah, via Jeff Lynn. But I mean, the first track reminded me of some of almost kind of an Oblady Oblada kind of situation, mm-hmm. and the uh, and that acoustic drops in that. Yeah, that's very traveling Wilburys right. almost, yeah, right? And, and also running down a dream has that. Oh and it's yeah, a very, yeah, and it's yeah. a very Jeff Lynn thing. Yes. He's so, good. Yeah, that one. That one also has a complex relationship with Nashville. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, the album's not what I was expecting from him. I was expecting something maybe a little more harder, but I was pleasantly surprised that it's kind of, it's a happy-go-lucky kind of record mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, it's titled uh, "Waiting on a Song," which the title track is the current single, which completely reminds me. And maybe I don't know if I'm alone on this, but I'm feeling like the sort of pop country flavor of Charlie Pride stuff uh, with that particular song. We talked a little bit about Roger Waters earlier. He has a new record called Is This the Life We Really Want? 
Um, yeah, this is going to be depressing. Though. It's a well. It's, you know, Lee Pardini is actually on this record. He really? is. He's playing keyboards on what? this record. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. So last night I get a text from Lee, who's uh, who's in the band Dawes, and um, Brian's known him for a very long time. I've known him for quite a while. Um, he's and, gonna kill me. I just brag about this guy all the time. He's gonna kill me. <laughs> yeah. But no, I get a text from last night. I say, hey, you got, when you're done, you know, recording the podcast, you get some lunch. And and I I thought, is he trying to get in on the podcast? I know he was trying to get invited. I said, <laughs> no, well, no, he doesn't care. About you know, the hope podcast. he doesn't. No, because man. no, he'll get his own. He's hanging out with spider monkeys and Roger Waters somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So if I go, no, he'll get his own. This is Brian's turn. He'll get his own. But it's funny you mentioned him <laughs> because I couldn't be happy. Talk about a guy. Couldn't be happier for the guy, but then you know he's on a Roger Waters record. Mm-hmm. So big anyway, stuff, no. big stuff. Very yeah, excited. That was a pretty cool record. I, you know, not a Pink Floyd has never been my favorite thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I have a lot of appreciation for them, but it was never my my big thing. Like you know, but it definitely sounds good and it's it's topical. I mean, it's if yeah. He's else. always and as expected. It's a it's got a political side to it. But for me, the selling point is the tail end, the last three tracks, which is pretty much like a a one-minute song sandwiched by a couple of... like They kind of bleed into each other. So it's like the last three songs kind of go together. But that middle focus song, uh, it's called Oceans Apart. Reminds me very much of Pigs on the Wing. Mm. So Animals, yeah. Era, Pink Floyd. Just a beautiful way to close out the record. Uh, other stuff I'm listening to, uh, the new Richard Edwards album. No relation, Gene, I'm sure. Yep. I did think of a couple of records. Go oh. for it. Um, I wanted to give a shout-out to Jesse Dayton. Oh He's yeah, a, a Texan, um, great powerhouse trio that he does. So it's uh, rockabilly and honky tonk and rock and roll. And uh, he has a record that's actually out on Blue Elan, yeah. the label oh, we mm-hmm. were talking about for Rod Melancont. Um, and it's called The Revealer. Yep. It came out a few months ago, which is I just I don't get that many new records to be <laughs> real honest. Right. Um, um, but I really have been enjoying that. And I also wanted to give a shout out to Jamie Wyatt who has a record that just came out called uh, Felony Blues, I believe. And that label, I think, is 40 Below. Might be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm on that record a little tiny bit, but I just wanted to single that one out because there's a there's a pretty cool uh, scene of Roots and Americana in L.A. happening right now, and she is one of the, in my opinion, one of the best voices. Yeah, I've heard really good of things. that movement. A good ride. It's a short record. It's a it's an EP. I think we it's like seven that. songs or something. Yeah, it's, it's brief, but she's a good writer and has an excellent voice. So and that just out. came out. That just came out a few weeks ago, okay. and the revealer is probably six months old or something now. But uh, yeah, um, I think that came out late last year. Yeah, yeah. But check out Felony Blues, Jamie White, great singing. The big single for me right now is Still Feeling It by Portugal the Man. But which Ooh, version? I don't know that. What? There's more than one. There's I, like, one... I, I went on Spotify what? and there's like a bunch of mixes of that out there. Uh, the good one? The good mix? Okay, I'll find that. The mono mix? Is there a mono mix? <laughs> fulfilling is fulfilling. Yeah. The good one. <laughs> the good one. The good one. That's right. That's the Eddie Murphy. Um, no, I just, I, this, this thing, it swings. It's, it's, I don't know. It's just got this great, great dance groove to it. And, uh, um, uh, uh, Portugal the man the, the the song is still feeling it uh it's just it's uh it just gets the ass shaking I, I love that one and also Harold T Wilkins by Fan Farlow it's a, it's, I heard this on on satellite and I just I just totally dug it so look look that one up because that's a, that's another uh 
current favorite of mine. Mm. You know, you were mentioning uh, the Americana roots kind of thing. Yeah. Um, this isn't new music necessarily, but uh, as far as what I've been listening to lately, yeah. I dug in on that uh, PBS American Epic show <gasps> I still, a little bit. Yeah, I meant to see that. I'm only one episode in. I think there's three or four out mm-hmm. now. But, man, it got me listening to old Carter family stuff and oh. Memphis jug band. And as I'm digging into all these old Carter family songs and reading up on them, just the, the stuff you discover, uh, there's there's one song, I forget the name of it, but I'm, I'm playing like a Spotify playlist on Shuffle. Mm-hmm. I think it's the American Epic album oh, for have. the Carter family. I think there's about eight different collections they put together focusing on different artists and then like a collection of various artists. Right. But I'm listening to the Carter family one, and as one song comes on, I'm driving, so I'm not seeing the title of it. Oh, I recognize this song. This is uh, you know, this land is your land. That's kind of <laughs> interesting, and uh, and then it's not. But it's not. It's the same music, it's, but it's totally different lyrics. Something about the world on fire. Yeah, I think a school teacher adapted the melody to Woody's lyrics, and that's how that melody and the lyrics of your land, this land is your land, are what we know them. Yeah. To be. So that, and then even Woody himself went back and recorded it. Yeah, so that song that I, from a child growing up, I just, that's all, that melody, that's Woody Guthrie, and I was like, wow, that's not Woody's melody. By the way, going back to the Super Bowl this year and Lady Gaga's halftime performance, it started with her doing, I believe, an a cappella version of God Bless America. Am I right, Karam? Do you remember the song? It's an Irving Berlin song, so I'm pretty sure it's, it's, it's God bless. yeah. Now, Woody Guthrie wrote This Land Is Your Land, just the lyrics, was an a protest. It was a as a counter, an angry counter to. Th- yeah, this is almost what you're talking about. Response. It was a response. It was a response song. song. Yeah, a rebuttal. Lady Gaga sings both "God Bless America" and "This Land Is Your Land" during that Super Bowl performance, and I, I give her the credit of knowing the history of the relationship of those two songs. Or if she doesn't, even better. Yeah, red states, blue states. We all got to get along. Yeah. We all got to get along. Yeah, just just be purple, everybody. Just like Prince wanted us to be. <laughs> hey, I like that. Yeah. I know what Purple Rain is. Um, so anyway, that's what we're listening to. Uh, a yeah. couple words of thanks. First of all, thank you very much, Brian, for coming over here. Uh, thank I you love for having you dearly. Me. Oh, you mean a lot to me in my life. Uh, I love your music. In fact, I remember when the, the first got a copy, The Decider, came home. I've been hearing it all the way through. And I told my wife, I, I said, I got Brian's record. I listened to him. It's great. And... Chris and she goes I think Brian's really talented I said I got lots of talented friends they don't make great records <laughs> that's sweet <laughs> and you did so well, thank, thank you very thanks much for having for me coming yeah, on it's been a lot Brian. of fun you're always welcome of course you're in the neighborhood so please and I know you always have opinions on music so you're a perfect okay. perfect candidate to be on Jukebox yes. Graduate uh, I also want to thank uh, Satellite Amplifiers my friend Adam Grimm over at Satellite Amplifiers who make uh, custom amps for all your needs they also have a new line of guitars and really cool pedals. Um, please go to Satellite or look them up, SatelliteAmplifiers.com for all of your amplification and gutsy tone needs. I also want to thank Alex and Karam here at Pollywood Studios in Eagle Rock for letting us uh, take over the Thanks, room. Guys. And um, thank you, DJ Bonebreak, for uh, introducing the show. Let's do our, our lyric quotes. You swore we'd live forever, taking it on the back streets together. I'm Dave Raver. We were talking about the space between us all and the people who hide themselves behind a wall of illusion. I'm Eugene Edwards, and this has been the Jukebox Graduate. Um.